things that um, I'm surprised that I haven't mentioned in a sermon yet is that um, among the many things that I'm interested in, I am a, a big history buff. Um, I was a history undergrad, and I continue. It's always I'm always reading some history book or listening to some history show. I, I like to that trying to look back at the past and ask, well, why was that that way, or why did that happen that way, or how could that have been different? And about a year ago, in my quest for things to read about history or to, to learn to use to learn about history, I discovered a podcast. Um, the podcast is called Revolutions, and it's by a guy named Mike Duncan. And he goes through a series of world revolutions and just kind of tells the story of them. So he begins with the Glorious Revolution, which I didn't know anything about, in England in the 1600s. Uh, and then it, right now he's sort of wrapping the series up with the, Rus with the Russian Revolution, which again, I don't know a lot about. Um, but of course, one of the first series he did was on the American Revolution. Um, and I know stuff about the American Revolution. We all do. We all took those classes in elementary and junior high and high school, but of course what we know about the American Revolution is what uh, American textbooks tell us about it, right? Which is not always the full story. There's no such thing as the full history of anything. But one of the things that was interesting about this podcast is that Duncan, of course, talks about General George Washington. Uh, and he was a, a, as good a leader as they say. He was charismatic, treated his soldiers right, um, was a good tactician on the battlefield. Um, but according to Duncan, on the battlefield, what Washington was really good at, his best talent, the thing that made him better than all of the other generals in these wars, was that he was really good at retreating. <laughs> like, really good. I think the way that Mike Duncan puts it is, if you needed somebody to get 10,000 men across a river in the middle of the night, Washington was your guy. <laughs> And you know what, when you're a ragtag revolutionary army fighting against the largest empire in the world, it, it helps to know how to get away. <laughs> you're going to be doing a lot of that. And indeed, there are stories of Washington clearing out entire forts in the middle of the night. And the next day, the British go to attack the fort and there's nobody there. <laughs> you know, I don't think that we often think of retreating as a virtue, though. Again, it's probably why we don't teach it about Washington. No, but you don't, no high schooler wants to read that the greatest leader in our country's history was really good at running away. It's not a virtue. Retreating is what you do when you're defeated, when you've lost. And yet, I think we also know that if you've gotten through life without ever being defeated, you're probably, you're either doing better than 99% of the population or you're not doing anything at all. And maybe that itself is a defeat. So the question for most of us is, what do we do when it's time to retreat? When it's time to count our losses and get away from the world? Because if we see retreat as a sign of failure, then we're gonna be in despair because eventually we will need to retreat and we're gonna think that we're broken or lost or didn't do what we were supposed to do. But instead, we can learn to see retreat as something else, as something that all people need, that all people will be encountering, doing at some point in their lives. And when we can do that, when we can admit that retreat is just something that we need, then we can do the next step. We can admit that we are in need of God. 
And this is, I think, one of the many ways, among, among many different ways, that we discover God, that we find God. By admitting that we are in need, that our hope is run out, that we are out of places to go. And in fact, this pattern is present throughout all of history. Retreating is something people do, not because they're weak, but because they, like all humans, need God. So I invite you now to hear our story of a retreat in the 19th chapter of 1 Kings. Well, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I, do not, if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. He got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. And suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. He looked, and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and laid down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him, and said, Get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank. Then he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. At that place he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking to take my life, to take it away. He said, Go out, stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks and pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake of fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone and left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. May God bless this reading. Well, Elijah is in some trouble. I don't know if you noticed or not. Just before our passage today, he's had the showdown with this group of people, the prophets of Baal. Both of these groups, Elijah and these other prophets, have built altars, and they're sort of competing with one another. Whose God will light the altar? And so the prophets of Baal build a big altar, put a calf on top of it, and pray to their God, to Baal, to set the altar ablaze, and nothing happens. And they dance around, and they pray, and they chant, and nothing happens. And then Elijah sets up his altar complete with the wood and the bowl and everything else. 
and then does what God instructs him to do, which is to douse it all in water, which when you're trying to start a fire is not the best course of action, but he does what God wants him to do. And he prays, and fire comes down from heaven and burns the sacrifice. It is the work of a prophet well done, except that it ends with Elijah gathering up the prophets of Baal and having them killed. Which is why we find our hero where we find him this morning. He is on the run. Jezebel, the wife of the king of Israel, the one who is in cahoots with the prophets of Baal, is after him. And Elijah is fleeing, retreating. He lays down underneath the tree and wonders if he can go on at all. That this shouldn't just be the place where he lays down and dies. Whatever, whether it's all of the work or the anxiety he's experienced or the call on, for his head, he has had enough. You know, I think it's a little bit of a stretch, but it's hard not to read this and think that Elijah is experiencing what today we might call burnout. You know, burnout is what happens when you've worked so hard and you are so out of energy that you just can't keep going. Usually it leads to giving up to deciding that you just can't keep doing what you're doing. And so it leads to lots of people quitting. And so what Elijah has going on is surely more serious than burnout. And yet this situation teaches us something. You see, he's at this place where he can't go on, and so he prays to God and says so, and God provides just enough to help him get up. A little bit of food, a little bit of water, as though God is saying, eat, get up, and get going. And it's the story we all know that follows Elijah's in a cave, and he goes out to meet God, and there's a big earthquake, and a fire, and a wind, and then there's silence. And it's in the moment of silence that all of the, when all of the worries of the world are stilled, that Elijah can hear the voice of God. And the voice of God tells him, we'll get back to it. There's work to be done. And maybe to us, you can read the story and think that this side journey of Elijah's was unnecessary. He journeyed off of the path, left his ministry behind for a while, prayed for his own death, and hid away in a cave. Why did he have to, why couldn't he just kept going? Why this sort of tangent? Well, there's a lesson in that. You see, in order to find God, we sometimes have to admit that we are in need of God. Which means sometimes admitting that we cannot go on anymore that we have reached our limits, that there just isn't any more juice in the tank. In order to find God, we have to admit that we need God. I think this is why we call it retreat, as in going on a spiritual retreat. It's not just getting away, it's retreating. Maybe as fast as you can, in the middle of the night. It is retreating from that which we cannot handle anymore. It is admitting that we have reached our limits, And so if we choose to, at times, give in and go off on our own to recharge, to, pe to depend on nothing but the provisions of God, to listen to the voice in stillness, we are in good company. Because the story of Elijah is that sometimes you need to rest 
and admit that there is nowhere else to go, no more work to be done until we have taken time off. But retreat can be a bad word. I mean, we live in a culture that privileges productivity and doing. This is probably why when I say burnout, you all know what I'm talking about. I don't even really have to explain it. But we are raised in this culture and taught that our value in life is about what we can produce, what we can do, what we can make. And so for some of us, this idea of taking time off, of retreating, is itself an anxious proposal. But then if I'm not here, who will do all the work that I do? Who will get done what needs to get done if it's not me? It's the same attitude that makes us think Elijah should have avoided the journey into the wilderness. But you see, this journey into the cave, away from everything, is not ancillary, it's not extra. Elijah wasn't just forced to retreat. He was in need of retreat. In order to do the work that God calls prophets to do, you're going to need time off from time to time to listen and to remember that all things are dependent on God. You know, interestingly enough, there's been some encouraging um, progress in society around this idea of retreating. I always think it's funny that religious people will come up with an idea and the world will go, oh, that's just... Religious. And then science will confirm it, and they'll go, look, science confirmed it. But what's fascinating is that the scientists are finding out that retreat, time off, is actually good for producti productivity itself. which doesn't make sense to us. If you're going to get something done, you have to do it. What they're learning is that if you stop doing it for a while, you're better at doing it when you get back. Go figure. But there's a, a whole bunch of stuff in psychology about this. In, recently in a, in a journal, Sandra Bond Chapman, who is a, a psychologist, wrote this. Time away from work, school, and the stress of a busy lifestyle is crucial to revitalizing or renewing your brain health. And by, not, by denying our brains a vacation, we diminish our ability to think creativity, create, creatively and strategically tackle complex problems. Our brains think more clearly when we get off the hamster wheel Stop rushing from one obligation to the next and make time to relax. She continues, you've probably experienced moments of insights or aha moments when a creative new idea or solution to a vexing problem suddenly occurs to you. This typically happens when you are not using up your mental energy focusing on the mistakes of yesterday or the rapidly accumulating tasks of tomorrow. So the idea is, if you don't take time to disconnect the wires in your brain, they will just connect in the same ways they always have. And so I think this is just like how the retreat that Elijah made was as much about the work he needed to get done as it was about his own energy. So too, we should see retreat, including spiritual retreat, about more than just recharging batteries. It's about connecting with our source. It's about allowing ourselves to rediscover God and God's call. And it's about admitting that we can't do anything without God. In this way, it's about rediscovering our call to follow. But we only do it, though, if we retreat. 
if we actually allow ourselves the chance to step away. You know, up until a few years ago, um, I was part of a young ministers group called Bethany Fellows. Um, so Bethany Fellows is this group that it's Lily funded. It's for ministers in their first five years of ministry because the burnout rate for ministers in their first five years is, is really, really high. Um, lots of people don't make it through their first five years. And so the point was to bring together groups of clergy from around the country for these retreat weeks, two retreat weeks a year. And so one of the days of these retreats, we would talk to local leaders who were doing innovative ministry, and one of the days we would get to check in with our peers and literally just do a 10-minute what's going on for you, um, which was a chance to sort of unpack our lives and changes and different things. Sometimes, frankly, it was just a rant. Um, I just need 10 minutes to talk about all the things that are wrong with the world, and then I'll be okay. <laughs> but, you know, amongst all of the time and all the great camaraderie and all the chances to learn about new ministry, there was something else. And this, I think if you asked anybody in Bethany Fellows, they would all say this was the most important part, the most anticipated part. On Wednesday of every retreat week at 7 a.m., we would enter into silence and we would stay in silence for 24 hours. Honestly, it was uncomfortable at first. What are you going to do for 24 hours? And honestly, I think that's what you do at first. You start coming up with lists. I'm going to read for the first hour, and I'll go walk a labyrinth for the second. I mean, you just, you come up with a list of things to do before you realize that you can't come up with 24 hours of things to do. And that's the point. But honestly, every time we did this practice, even if it was uncomfortable, I feel like I learned something about myself and about my call to ministry. The days when I had purposely put aside all the things I had to do, all the tasks and work, were the days when God did what God needed to do and when I allowed it to happen. These were the times when all of the wires and the ideas and connections in ministry were allowed to connect and rest for a while. And like Elijah under the broom tree, someday these, sometimes these days began with me announcing my desire to give up, to cease the journey. But these days always ended in a different place, with a renewed sense of how God was calling me. Honestly, even as I was writing the sermon and as I'm preaching it, I can't help but think you know, a few years removed from these retreats, why is it that I haven't done this since then? Why, isn't silent, why aren't silent days part of my spiritual life? I think I struggle with this because I really do. I think that if I take a day off and literally do nothing, I won't be productive enough. We all have that inclination, don't we? That if I don't have something to do, and I think this even seeps into my personal life. Do you ever have where you're doing one thing that you want to do and you think, well, I really should be doing this other thing, be more productive? And you know, whatever obsession the world has with productivity, it's present in the church as well, isn't it? We like to have things to do, new projects, activities, we like to have things we can feel with our hands. It's kind of a curse. 
the curse of productivity. And I think it's heightened at times in the church when we are talking about the future or about decline or about how we want things to change. It feels like there should be more work to do. As if the problem was we didn't have enough people doing enough work or working hard enough. And please don't get me wrong, I really appreciate the work that people do around this building. Would not happen without people putting in work. And yet, we're sometimes missing a more important form of work, one that doesn't feel like work. We as a church are missing retreat. To fall back, to listen to the voice that calls in stillness. For the path forward in the church, it isn't a call to do more or to work harder or smarter or anything else. The path forward might be to sit under a broom tree and admit that we don't know what we're doing. That we've reached our limit. We cannot go on. And from that place, allow God to speak. To allow God's voice in the midst of the stillness, of the quiet. Because how do you find God? By allowing yourself to admit that you need God that we need God. And so as we move forward as a church, as a community, as we continue to talk about the future, I pray that you will help me with something. I need you to do something for me. And that something is nothing. There isn't anything to do. For we are called into retreat. To be with God, to be in stillness, to not ask what can be done, but to ask what is the word from God in this time. Amen.